Lord, we come to you with thankful hearts. We know that uh, we bring all kinds of baggage into this room from just this week. Uh, And yet, we can walk away from all of that because we know that it's all under your purview. It's all under your sovereignty. This is right where we should be at this particular time. So we pray that this would be uh, time that would uh, be well spent, that we would expand our understanding of um, your law, and that it might result in godly spiritual fruit. In Christ's name, amen. Wayne. What is the word to describe the Hebrew canon? The word to describe the Hebrew canon. The Tanakh, correct? All right, very good. Uh, Caleb, what are the three parts of the Tanakh, of the Hebrew canon? What are the three parts? Nailed it. Law, prophets, and writings. Gold star for Caleb, even while he's rubbing his eyes. I love it. He can do it in his sleep. All right, Dennis. What are the two categories of prophets? Not major and minor. Those are are categories in a different... Yeah, but not what we're talking about. Yes. It's the former and the latter. Yes. Former and latter. Boy, oh boy, I'm not repeating that. Former and the latter prophets. Okay. And then, Steve, what are our two categories of writings? No? That, that's a genre of literature still, so it's good. There we, there we go. Pre-exilic and post-exilic. So we're, we're going to get this down. Okay. Um, uh, let's see here. Julian, do you know when the Pentateuch was likely authored? Okay. Anyone else want to take a shot? Yeah, yeah, 1446 to 1406. Perhaps the more important thing is that that most likely took place during what? The wilderness wandering. So Moses is knocking, knocking out the, the Torah, the Pentateuch, while he's wandering in the wilderness, so to speak. Uh, the, yeah, the first five books of the Bible are the Torah, also referred to as the Pentateuch. So those first, yes. P-E-N-T-A-T-E-U-C-H. And we'll talk just a little bit more about that as well. Um, Another uh, thing for review, compared to other religions, particularly of the ancient Near East, um, what was unique about the theology that that we talked about in Genesis? Because that continues, of course. Gary? Uh, it, It is monotheistic, but that's not really... Uh, the point that I was making. Oh, there's an there's yes, there's a telos, that there is a goal, there is a fulfillment, that there is a purpose to the whole thing. 
that there is an actual beginning in Genesis that is headed to an, a particular ending and that everything in between has a purpose. God is sovereignly overseeing that. So this mono, it's a religion, so you're correct, Gary, it's a monotheistic religion in which one God that's seated on the throne is overseeing all of history for a specific purpose. It's not this pantheon of gods where we just try to get our way or to make them happy to, to, to make our lives um, uh, more enjoyable in the temporary. Um, let's see, do I have any other? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so last week we were looking at Exodus and um, what geographic feature was at the center of the two parts of Exodus. So we kind of divided Exodus into two halves. What was the main like geographic thing that's pretty much in the center of the what do you have, Glenda? Mount Sinai, correct. So in those first, uh, I've got to look for the chapters. In the first 18 chapters, chapters 1 to 18, we had that they were escaping to Mount Sinai. And then from 19 to the end, which is chapter 40, we have all the legislation that was given at Mount Sinai. So we have that, that Mount Sinai being kind of the, the middle of that. Okay, so today we're looking at Leviticus. Um, where many uh, well-intended reading plans that start in January come to die uh, when when they get to Leviticus. It is my hope that maybe after we discuss this a little bit and you have a sense of the themes of Leviticus and why it's there, um, that maybe when you come to it, you'll have a more positive attitude about it. And... To Kaylin's credit, she was very excited this morning when she saw that we were going to cover Leviticus. See that smile on her face? Not sure what that says about her, but we'll think only the best things. So, um, so the, uh, the title Leviticus, of course, we, we, use, the Greek, uh, we use the Greek term uh, Le- uh, Leviticus, which just means pertaining to the Levites. The Levites were the, uh, the tribe that were, that were called to be priests. And then in the Hebrew, they did, the, uh, Moses did, or God did through Moses, the Hebrews entitled it with the first word of the book. So in other words, it, it did, they did it the same way that they did with Exodus, which ends up translating to, and he called. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but do you remember the, the point that I made about Exodus and how Exodus began? Do you remember? Do you remember what, what? Yes, the and. Leviticus does the exact same thing. So if you look at Leviticus 1.1, you're probably not going to see the word and in your English translation, but um, the Hebrew has, it's called a consecutive vav. It's, it's, there's an and embedded into the beginning of Leviticus, and so it has a direct connection to the end of Exodus. And we'll look at that here in just a second. Uh, but this is what we can know, and again, hopefully this is encourages you as you read through the Bible and you get to Leviticus, is that all of it is in, the Torah is laid out in a logical order. This is the way that uh, it was intended to be. The, first, there's Genesis, naturally, that's the beginnings, and then you have the and that rolls everything into the phase of Exodus, and then you have another and which rolls it now into the new phase. 
Um, okay, so interesting about the uh, about the timing of when it was uh, authored as well is that it is most likely that not only was Leviticus authored during the wilderness wanderings, but it was most likely authored at the time that they were at Mount Sinai. So here we just discussed that in Exodus there was this escape to Sinai, and then there's the legislation that's given at Sinai during Exodus. Probably everything that we read in Leviticus is also given while they are stopped at, Levi- at Mount Sinai before they continue their journey toward Canaan. And here's how we can know that. Um, actually, yes. So uh, who's my Leviticus? Carol. Leviticus 27. Uh, let me actually... Let me, let me do this. Yes, you're about to read that. But um, the very last thing that takes place then in Exodus is the construction of the tabernacle and then at Mount Sinai. And then you get the entirety of Leviticus. And now Carol is going to re- read Leviticus 27:34, which is the last verse of Leviticus. So go ahead. These are the commandments that Yahweh commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. Okay, so there we have, right at the very end of Leviticus, we have the fact that um, that's what was given while they were at Mount Sinai. All right, we already talked about that. I'll write this up here because I think you need to see it again. 14, actually BC goes on this side. Um, And then our author is still Moses. Of course, he's authoring the entirety of the Pentateuch, the entirety of the Torah. And again, we can have confidence that he is the author of that because just within the book of Leviticus, we have some version of the phrase, the Lord spoke to Moses 37 times. So there's really no reason to think that there was another author of the book of Leviticus. All right. Let's look a little closer at this whole connection of the and of the, from, from Exodus at the, uh, that carries us into the, uh, or the end of Exodus that carries us through with the and of the beginning of Leviticus. So in that second half of Exodus, we have the legislation that is given at Mount Sinai, and that legislation is how to govern the people. So the, the way that we frequently refer to it as, that's civil Legislation. This is what should happen when you accidentally kill your neighbor, you know, ABC. This is what should happen. When someone steals from another person, this is what should happen. Boom, boom, boom. So it's laying out this laws of how the people should be governed. That's what's taking place in Exodus. And then let's look at how the book of Exodus ends in, in the last chapter there in Exodus 40, Verses 16 to 19. Julian. Thus Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded him, so he did. Now in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle and laid its sockets and set up its boards and inserted its bars and erected its pillars. He spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent on top of it just as the Lord had commanded Moses. 
Okay, so we had all of this giving of um, this civil law and how to govern the people while they're at Mount Sinai. And at the end of that episode within Exodus, they're building this tabernacle. So, so we ask the question then, okay, what is the purpose of the tabernacle? And the first is essentially what they're doing is they're, go- they're, they're constructing a mobile Mount Sinai. So God is meeting with them as a people at Mount Sinai in a special way. And Pastor Nick is about to launch very soon into an entire series on all the the glorious things that are going to take place between God, who's, you know, they look up, it's smoky, Moses is up there, this whole incredible, unique experience that's, that's happening on the top of Mount Sinai. They are constructing a tabernacle so that when they're on the move, God can inhabit, or his glory can inhabit that actual, you know, edifice. So God is going to inhabit the tabernacle in a, in a special way. It is a, um, it's a mobile, you know, Mount Sinai. And so, um, let's read Exodus 40, verses 33 to 38. Glenda. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished his work. Then the Lord, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of Yahweh was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. All right, hang on to the microphone for just a second. So... We have here, see this description of the mobile Mount Sinai? So they haven't left anywhere yet, but within Exodus, it's giving us that that picture of, hey, this tabernacle was created exactly as God told Moses to create it. And what's going to happen is that when they move out, when they start heading out, God is going to, his glory filled the tabernacle, and it's going to continue to do so as a cloud of smoke during the day and as a pillar of fire during the night. So we have this, this ongoing movement and the glory of God inhabiting the tabernacle. But here's the question. There's a problem. Did you? And I don't know if you caught it. I know it's difficult to both read. And, and what, where is the problem in what happened? Moses wasn't in, able to enter it. Exactly. So here we have that experience of Moses at the top of Mount Sinai being exposed to God's glory, this meeting in a special way. And then Moses does what he's supposed to do and at the end of Exodus and creates this tabernacle according, according to God's specifications. God does what he promised he would do or, or, the, or carried out the intent of building the tabernacle, which is to inhabit that, that building, that temporary building there, and so that they can have a mobile Mount Sinai. But the problem is that that's great, but they can't go in. So that's the issue. Okay, you can give it back to Mark. Um, so the second purpose there 
is difficult because Moses can't approach. So they made it to Mount Sinai, right? The whole, so Exodus, they made the escape to Mount Sinai. While they're at Sinai, they receive the Ten Commandments. Uh, in addition to the Ten Commandments, they receive this civil law. They then build the tabernacle as instructed. God fills it, and yet they are unable, as Glenda just read, to enter the tent of meeting. Now, if you've read Leviticus, the Old Testament, then you probably have noticed that it almost seems interchangeable, that it will, the, the building, uh, the structure is sometimes referred to as a tabernacle and sometimes referred to as a tent of meeting kind of synonymous, interchangeable. And in one sense, they are interchangeable. It's talking about the same place. There's not a, um, you know, it's the same building in a sense. However, they have a different focus. The idea is that the tabernacle was built because that was what God told Moses to do, build this tabernacle and that he's going to fill it with his glory. But the purpose was so that the people would have access to God, so that it would be a specific place that they would go and meet with God. So it was supposed to be a tent of meeting. Well, here now we enter the problem, which is that God did everything he said he would do to accomplish his purposes of filling that thing with his glory, but they are unable to actually meet with God. So when we read the word tabernacle, it's focusing on that, this first aspect of God uh, dwelling in, uh, or his glory dwelling in it. And then when you read that, uh, the term tent of meeting, it, it focuses more on the concepts, the concept of meeting with God. So same place, but just kind of two different, two different ways to look at it. Now, all of this comes into view when you look now at the transition. We're back to our and at the beginning of Leviticus. And when we look at the transition, now we can go from Exodus 40, where God's glory fills this tabernacle, yet there's no access to this idea of the, of the uh, tent of meeting with God. So if you look at Leviticus um, chapter 1, verse 1, I think I put it up there. It says, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. So if we put our and in front of that, which is what the Hebrew actually includes, and the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, hopefully you can visualize now what has taken place. Everything is packed and ready to go. They've got a tabernacle and God is glory has filled that thing. And he's like, okay, you're supposed to head towards the promised land. That's all part of promises we looked at back in Genesis. And I have this plan and you're going to be able to meet with me in a special way, or that's the way it's designed. And so we're all packed up and ready to go, except at the end of Exodus, they couldn't approach. And if Moses can't approach, who can I mean, nobody has any hope of approaching if Moses can't approach. And so now you enter Leviticus where it says, and the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. So that's the whole backdrop. That's the picture of what Leviticus is about, is that, okay, how do we resolve the problem of 
they're packed and ready to go, but actually they're not really ready to go. They're packed, but not ready to go because they can't even approach the, uh, the tent of meeting then. They have no actual access to God. And what then proceeds from there is that what God tells Moses then is he gives instructions on how to approach, how to enter the tent of meeting, and that's what we refer to as ceremonial laws. So whereas in Exodus we start to get these civil laws about how people should be governed among themselves, we now start to get these ceremonial laws where God says, this is how you're going to be able to have access to me. This is how you're going to be able to... um, come to the tent of meeting. All right. So under this umbrella, hopefully you have this in your head now. So think of this as, a, you know, almost like a spinoff from everything that's going on in the, this, this timeline. And, and, you know, you have these promises that took place in Genesis that, of course, originated in Genesis 3.15. And, and remember, that's where it just started as a little promise. And then we start to pick up more information. We've talked about that, how in the Hebrew uh, literary uh, method of, of communicating. So that's what's taking place right now. And so um, we have everything that took in Exodus. We have the ceremonial law being given within Leviticus so that they might gain access. And so we have this standalone, I shouldn't use that word, it's not standalone, we have this and because we're having to solve a problem before their journey. They can't head out on their journey to the promised land till they've resolved how are they going to meet with God. And so God says this is how it's going to happen. And what he does is we see that there are three general themes throughout the book of Leviticus. And that first theme is holiness. The Hebrew root word for holy and holiness and consecrate in um, Leviticus is used 143 times. 143 times. So uh, who's my Leviticus 19? One and two, Steve. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. Okay, so if you're going to have access to God in this tent of meeting, this is what it requires. You have to be holy as God is holy. The second thing, then, going along this line is, well, how are they supposed to be holy? And the second theme we see along the way is sacrifice. So according to the ceremonial law, the way that people are made holy, the way that they are sanctified, are through these sacrificial offerings. And then it lines out the different ones, and there are five of them. There's a whole burnt offering, there's a grain offering, there's a peace offering, there's a sin offering, there's a guilt offering... You know, I'm not going to break all those down. But the point is that if you're going to have access to God at the tent of meeting, there has to be sacrifice that results in, a, uh, in sanctification. To get you to this point where you are holy. 
But there's another level, which is, well, how are these sacrifices to take place? Well, they can't do it for themselves. They have to have a mediator. And so the third theme that is in, uh, that is in Leviticus is the idea of the priesthood. So not only were sacrifices necessary, but there must also be a particular called out group of people that were set aside, that they themselves were made holy so that they could legitimately make the sacrifices so the people could be made holy so that there could be any kind of access to God. And their other job was then also to teach the people, you know, how to be holy and to, uh, you know, live in the instruction of the Lord. Uh, so to that end, Leviticus 10, 8 to 11. Jane. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. Okay, so what's happening here is we have a description of a particular group of people that are set apart to be made holy. So they themselves are not holy. The people certainly aren't holy. They have to be made holy. That's going to require sacrifices. Well, who's going to do the sacrifices? Well, that requires a separate group of people that are set aside and that God makes holy to do that. None of them themselves are actually holy in and of themselves, but God has instituted this process. He's instituted a system to say, okay, temporarily, this is how it's going to go down so that you can have access to me and so that he can accomplish his purposes in the long term. So those are the three big themes that you see within Leviticus that's all related to all of this is for the purpose of gaining access to God. All right. Now, as far as the actual division of the book, because I think that's helpful, just like we saw in Exodus, the chapters 1 to 18 and then the 19 to 40, we actually uh, see a a division here, too. This comes from um, uh, a book... uh, by Michael Morales. And so the three divisions are approaching the house of God, cleansing the house of God, meeting with God at the house of God. And so chapters 110 is a discussion about how to, be, how to approach the house of God. Chapters 11 to 16, cleansing the house of God. And then, uh, oh, I didn't write the chapters down there. Uh, and then that final one is chapters 17, 17 to 27, the remainder of the book, on meeting with God at the house of God. Now, the key chapter in the middle of all of this, though, is chapter 16, which has to do with the Day of Atonement. That is kind of the key of all of this. And the Day of Atonement is that day that the priests, right, these guys that are the only authorized ones to offer the sacrifice so that it might result in holiness for all the people so that they might have access to God, is the day 
that they enter the one day of the year, they enter the Holy of Holies, they sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, that they lay their hands on the goat that is then sent out into the wilderness, of course, that is a physical demonstration of this transfer of guilt sent out from the people. So, of course, the symbolism and everything that that point, goodness, you could have a heyday with all that, right? With everything that that represents. And that takes place in chapter 16, so pretty much, uh, pretty close to the center of the book uh, right here, so that ultimately,